A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 196 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman, and with me like the need to track down Luke Skywalker, the EU guru himself, the count of these two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! There need to be like a line of books, folks. Uh, a bunch of crowds, and in the crowd, there's a Luke, and you just have to find Luke. You just call it, Where's Luke? Hey, everybody. <laughs> like a Where's Waldo Star Wars edition. Yeah, like force him to wear Jedi robes that are like red and white striped. <laughs> yes, I like it. I can, I can dig on that. Yeah, nice and ugly. Uh, well, folks, we are finally going to be delving into a topic that I know you've been waiting for here on the show we dealt with it a little bit in our other part of our year in review, but we've also sort of dealt with this in other places. We're finally beginning our coverage of The Force Awakens. And if you want to hear some general thoughts on The Force Awakens from Mark, he has covered that with the team over there at Star Wars Report in recent episodes there. I believe it was around episode 200 or so. Yep. Then, for me... If you want to hear my thoughts, along with the thoughts of uh, Jonathan, Jerry, Barrett, and Jin, which is kind of a accidental Republic Forces Radio Network reunion, you can check out the most recent episode, at least number 27, of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, also on StarWarsReport.com, just like all these other podcasts here. I've also given sort of a quick rundown of my thoughts, first impressions, you might say, in, I believe it was episode 7, perhaps, fittingly. Uh, of my Battlefront livestream podcast, for lack of a better name. It's basically a series of live streams using Battlefront where Star Wars topics are just discussed and Battlefront is just kind of playing on the screen, which you can find at YouTube. It's at youtube.com slash user slash chrono radio. So we've already kind of hit the general discussion on The Force Awakens, but what we want to do is sort of revisit it here and give it that Star Wars Beyond the Films spin. Things like did it justify the reboot? And if they hadn't rebooted, could they have done something different and still been able to make this film? Uh, how does it reflect things that we might have seen previously in the Legends continuity as opposed to canon? Uh, what have we seen in canon that has enhanced the experience of seeing The Force Awakens, if anything? Such as background of characters that we see on screen. Basically, let's take the film beyond the films to give you some more context and the type of coverage of the film that hopefully we can replicate as we see these new movies coming out through Disney. That's right.
Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we explore The Force Awakens. We've given you our impressions. Now comes the digestion, regurgitation, and reincarnations. Before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we're going to give you a quick spoiler-free kind of rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. I'm kind of scared about the fact that you just called it regurgitations. <laughs> Those puke-worthy moments, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, well, no, nobody stepped in poop in this in this film so far. Um, well, I guess from a non-spoiler perspective, the key here would probably be just sort of our general impressions, which we've given in depth elsewhere, but just some general impressions so you kind of know where we're coming from, and maybe a bit about how we saw it. So I guess in my case... I love the film. Uh, really big fan of The Force Awakens. I think at this point it is my favorite Star Wars film, but take that with a grain of salt. When I saw Attack of the Clones and recorded the first episode of Chrono Radio back in 2002, I said that was the best Star Wars film ever. So not sure how much my judgment can be trusted on that sort of thing. Um, really love the film. Really love the new characters. Not sure that we really have a lot of context yet. I mean, we've got a couple of guidebooks that give some, but for the most part... Both the stuff labeled as Journey to the Force Awakens and the stuff that isn't that's been released that we were given the sense that maybe there'd be hints about stuff coming up really haven't done a whole lot to build on it. So it's kind of a film that it doesn't entirely stand out there on its own with no context. There's just not much of it. As for how I've seen it, I've seen it two different ways, uh, both at the same theater but in two different uh, formats that were available. I've seen the regular 2D version uh, in a nice theater you know where you got the the seats that you can click and they recline and stuff where people actually act as if it's something special to be seeing the movie instead of acting like idiots on their cell phones which was nice you heard me rant a lot about my theater going experience this is the exact same theater but it has since been remodeled and at least when i went to see star wars it was as if people walked in and somehow the atmosphere had changed because of the remodeling and they realized oh i shouldn't be a douchebag and that's nice uh, I also saw it in what they call XD3D. Now, not 4D. 4D is that thing where it's like the seats rumble and stuff underneath you. I haven't seen it in that format because I don't think there's one nearby. But I've seen 3D, and XD is where the Cinemark chain basically does it on. It's like a size of a screen that's bigger than a standard screen but smaller than an IMAX. So it's sort of a bigger presentation, and it's 3D at the same time, and the sound system is set up a little bit differently so you really get a lot of the rumbles and the, and the echoes and stuff from the back that you don't necessarily get as much with a standard presentation. So 3D, XD for me, and 2D, and loved it. I went myself, went with my wife a couple times, and uh, I'm eager for April 5th when we finally get to see this on home video because I'm crossing my fingers that this will finally be the first Blu-ray 3D Star Wars release, so I can relive that 3D experience at home on my little tiny PlayStation-branded uh, 3D TV. Man, there are so many things here that I want to cover and talk about. Uh, as you will realize, listeners, we are going to be covering this from a couple different angles. Uh, for me, one of the things that I really want to put out there before we get into spoiler-free coverage, my brother-in-law came and asked me, you know, how is it you like the film? Uh, you know, me and him, we didn't really see eye to eye when it came to the Star Trek reboots. 
and it was odd because he and I were both Star Trek fans. So I kind of had a feeling he might have gone this route. He was a, a Lord of the Rings fan. So, you know, having things kind of go off script is something he's used to. Uh, but he had some issues and he was like, you know, how how is it that you being you like this film so much? And I say, you know, well, my number one issue here is that I'm a Legends fan. Everything I know about Legends, that's what I know about Star Wars. So, you know, things like Wilhuff being Wilhuff Tarkin. You know, is it still that? So we went into that whole thing. I was explaining to him, you know, like we're taking for granted all these names. So I had to come at this as this movie that canon is an alternate universe. That's how I came at it. I just the legends is one alternate universe. Canon is another alternate universe. Call it what you want. It's just an alternate version of Star Wars. And I went into it with that mindset. And that set me free of all my preconceived notions, all my expectations. I just sat down and took that film for what it was. Now, I did walk out of the theater and I was loving what I saw. I was conflicted on so many levels uh, that, you know, and I was I was expressing that on Facebook, you know, like, oh, I'm so conflicted. I got so many emotions right now. And people misunderstood me. They thought I was hating the movie. And it was like, and I was being so vague that I did. I had to go back and explain to people, no, I actually enjoyed the movie quite a bit. It's not what you think. I'm not some EU fan hating on the film. I actually like the film. Uh, but there were so many differences to it. And we will get into all that. But that's something I want to throw out there. Uh, if you have yet to see the film and you're concerned about how it's going to affect your fandom, which if you've been listening to me on the Star Wars report, that's been my number one fear is, you know, am I going to go in this and this is going to be the turnoff switch for my fandom? I'm going to come out and just hate on Star Wars from here on out. I was terrified that that was going to be the case. Was not the case. The other side of that, though, I did not go and see it with my dad yet. My dad, we had to wait a little bit. We were going to watch it in 3D. My dad read that 40 unforgivable plot holes in TFA article. That BS article that I've I've re-shared another article where they tear it apart because there was a lot of stuff in there that the guy wrote. It was just not paying attention. So my dad read that and he was pissed right out the gate. So I'm like, okay, I got to take my dad to go see this film. And he does. He's mad. He's mad at JJ. He's mad at Lucas. He's mad at Lucasfilm. And again, perspective, if you've been listening to the show, you know. But if you're new to the show, my Kids are all named after EU characters, okay? My daughter, Jaina, named after Han and Leia's kid, okay? That is no longer the case. My dad, I got him hooked on these books, so he's coming from that same spot. So that was really difficult for me. So I went, I saw it in 2D because I wanted to watch it in 3D with my dad. So I did that. I, I, I loved it, had a lot of fun. When I went to go and see it in 3D, I was kind of disappointed because we saw it in real D, which is, of course, my preferred way of watching it. But it wasn't really filmed so much for 3d, not like the avatar movie was. So it's my dad's first 3d experience. So 3d wise, he was like, eh, you know, that was okay. But he actually came away from the movie happy. He liked it. He enjoyed it. I was so thankful for that one fact because I was just like, you know, I got my dad hooked on legends and now I was like, because of this, here's the spot in our fandom where we're going to have to take and go separate ways. You know, I'm not gonna be able to follow him. Uh, but there were some interesting things that, that come to my mind after watching this film, like, when we watch this film after watching episodes eight and nine, this whole film is going to have a totally different backstory. So there's so really cool directions here that I'm looking forward to. Uh, you know, that was one of the angles that I was really kind of, you know, excited about and trepidatious for at the same time. I'm like, you know, I want the books, you know, I want to answers that this film brought up, but there's so many plot points that they've left open that we're going to have to wait a long time for. That's going to be rough, man. Uh, that's one of those things that really, it, it, it shakes me to my core. Um, I watched it. I watched it the most in 2d. I've only watched it the one time in 3d. 
Uh, no IMAX experience, though I have heard if you watch it in 3D on IMAX, because that first opening Star Destroyer scene is filmed for IMAX 3D, that that sucker, I guess, really pops. I was really looking forward to that in the 3D one at my local theater. And the real D, it doesn't quite do it. I mean, that was, I think that was the one disappointing thing about the 3D aspect was so little of it was pop out. I mean, like the opening crawl, it did the whole hang in your face thing. But really, that was about it for visual effects that hung out in your face. So that was kind of disappointing. But overall, for me, I had a generally good experience. I Like you, Nate, I'm currently ranking this as number one uh, when we talked about it with the books and uh, the um, other stuff episode. When I am intellectually honest and I, I take away Stover for you know episode three, I look at episode five as my top film of the six. And right now at this moment, episode seven it's currently my top with episode five being right after that. That's the regurgitation for me here. I'm, I'm constantly reevaluating and, you know, re re putting it on its pedestal every time I watch it. And that's what I was telling my brother-in-law, me and my brother-in-law had this huge long conversation yesterday, the day before we recorded this. And I was just like, you know, just like with every EU book, it's the ones you reread and rewatch the most that you get more out of it. And he'd only watched it once. And after we had this long conversation, he's like, you're right. I got to go back and rewatch this film. He's like, there's a lot of stuff that I just, I just need to know. Uh, but our conversation, it got around the fact that there are a lot of details and stuff that aren't in the film that he kind of felt were integral, which we will get into as we get into the spoiler part, because I brought up the fact that I had just read the book as well as the audiobook. And there are some aspects that those bring in kind of like a Stover effect, but not so much. I mean, Stover, we, we give the Stover effect, the title, the Stover effect, because he did such a great job of elevating what Lucas did on film and, and filling in gaps that really should have been on the screen. Now there are moments like that in the film and the books do do that, but not to the same effect or not to the same magnitude that Stover did. But again, we'll get into that as we move on. It's funny. So you digest it once and then you said regurgitation. So you're really more talking like a cow chewing its cud. You're you're <laughs> digesting. But then you're just like Bleh! now I got to digest it all over again. That's a little bit creepy. Um <laughs> I do find it funny your 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 dad going into it angry to begin with. It's like he's so angry about what he read online that he's like, "Oh, Fine, I'm not going to like this. He's using hashtag thanks Obama. He's out there. He's so mad about The Force Awakens, he's going to vote for Trump. It was uh, so bad. Riley's like, don't do it. Don't even take him. I'm like, because he was asking me last night. He's like, so how'd it go? How'd it go? I'm like, it actually went well. He's like, are you kidding me? I was wrong. I'm like, you were wrong. Like, I'm, I'm surprised too. Freaky. Uh, I do think, though, that you raise a very good point about this film relative to the ones that we remember most uh, from our adulthood now, which, of course, is the prequels. And I know there'll be a lot of comparisons I'm sure that we'll wind up doing because they're they're almost guaranteed that there would be comparisons between this film and the originals and the prequel trilogy. But it's interesting that we're almost like – it's almost like we're living in the 80s again to some extent, 70s and 80s. Because when you watch A New Hope in the 70s, you don't realize there's a sequel coming. Then there's an announcement that a sequel's coming, and there's all this anticipation, where's the story going to go? Then you get the end cliffhanger, of course, of The Empire Strikes Back, or cliffhangers, and people are freaking out, and they've got to wait three years to finally get Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. You go to the prequels, and I don't think we really had that same type of effect. We were still very 
anticipatory. We wanted to see the new films. Uh, they announced The Phantom Menace. We're dying to get to May of 99. Um, and then, of course, we're dying to get to May of 2002 and then May of 2005, especially 2005, because we want to see that moment where Anakin turns into Vader. But when it came to the prequels, so much of it was already set in stone. We sort of knew certain things had to happen because it was a prequel. There wasn't an open-ended ending. It had to end at a certain point. And to an extent, it was sort of like with Babylon 5, uh, where they use the flash-forwards frequently, uh, where yeah. J. Michael Straczynski has said before plenty of times, it's it's not so much the end destination that makes a story interesting, it's how do you get there. So sometimes if you know the destination, it can be interesting, what are the twists and turns to reach that point, even if we kind of know where it's going. But I yeah. think that sort of dulled a lot of those questions that we had. So that then when we get to the point of the sequel trilogy, now, again, we're at a point where there's one film, everything else is going to happen after it, but we haven't seen the end result yet. There really are true unanswered questions, big unanswered questions. Uh, I think we're experiencing sort of a, re a return to that 80s type of mentality. It's an excitement mm -hmm. and a frustration at the same time. But at least in this case, you know, we're not waiting Three years. The way that Disney yeah. is talking about this, they're talking about basically a numbered film every other year with one of those supplemental films in the middle, as opposed to back when we were waiting for three years between films with nothing in the middle. Yeah, that and that was a huge part of my conversation with my brother-in-law, because he was talking about, you know, well, when I sat down and I watched these films back in the day all the answers were right there. I didn't have to have the audio book. I didn't have to have the other book because he brought up a question about a battle at the end of the film. And he was like, you know, well, how could so-and-so take on, you know, so-and-so and, -so? and I explained th through the books and all this stuff. And he, by the time we were done, he was like, you know, those are great explanations, but I shouldn't have to read that stuff. And I'm like, you know, you're right. But he's like, well, there's so much anticipation. When I went and saw these other ones, there, you know, it wasn't like that. And I said, well, Yes and no. I'm like, you know, you watched episode four, you didn't know anything. But when that came out, there was all these mystery and stuff came up. And when it, the first original trilogy got over, we thought that was it. And then we found out there was going to be prequels. And there was that anticipation again. You know, I'm like, I'm all, JJ did a real good job of in one film capturing what feels like 20 years of fan buildup of emotion and anticipation. I mean, that that's, you know. I, and that's what I was explaining to him. I'm like, yeah, when you had the original trilogy, you didn't really have that much because you weren't expecting more stuff to come. But once you had the prequel trilogy, you did have that again. And we were all waiting for episode three. Like, how does it end? How is it all going to tie up? How is it? And then we, we got to the end of that and we were thinking, okay, well, that's it. There's no more buildup. And now, bam, oh, what? There's another sequel trilogy. And we get that, and there's all these details still left out. I mean, we're still like, what's going to happen? And that's what I was explaining to him. I'm like, you know, once we find out, like, Ray's heritage, for example, you know, I mean, me and him, we were kicking back and forth that we're really thinking it's either going to be a Skywalker or Solo. Both me and my brother-in-law are both leaning Skywalker. But I'm like, now, either way, if it's one of those two, it is a Anakin Skywalker lineage. I mean, there were so many angles we were discussing about this, but it's like her interactions with Han change immensely just based off of if she's Han's kids or Luke's kids or someone else's kid. But we won't know that until episode eight or even nine. I mean, like, so once those films come back, we're going to be going back to this film and rewatching it again and reevaluating where it sits in our place. Cause we may find that based off of what her true background is, that may make the film have a more endearing quality to our hearts, or it may irritate the hell out of us. If I can make a somewhat, was non-family friendly example i guess uh, in in a lot of ways it's like episode seven was getting to third base 
so to speak. Um, it was a lot of, of ooh, this is not, ooh, ooh, inter- mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it's the, but wait, nope, we're stopping before you make it all the way home. Um, maybe next time, big boy. That kind of thing. We're just kind of like, yeah. you know, it's, there's a lot of buildup, a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. But there are going to be some that walk away from it. Uh, you know, what's the line from the uh, cautionary tale, as I call it, Romeo and Juliet? Wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? There will be people who are just like, ah! I needed the answers now. Um, and I think that in, to some extent, that's a great thing about the film because it keeps that excitement there for the next couple of years to, to sort of carry on the discussion as we get to the new film. Uh, that said... There are other aspects that were unanswered questions in the film itself that I've got to agree with your brother-in-law when it comes to there were certain things we probably should have been told. J.J. Abrams likes to tell sort of a streamlined kind of storytelling. He doesn't want to bog you down with a lot of exposition, a lot of extraneous facts, whereas if you look at the prequels, it was all about extraneous facts, extraneous CGI. I mean, Lucas was sort of, for lack of a better term, if you want to put it in probably the most positive spin on it, Lucas was all about the world building in the prequels and the galaxy building, whereas J.J. really wasn't. J.J. was about telling the story of these characters, and if you happen to learn about the world around them, great, kind of like with the original trilogy. Um, The thing about it, though, is that there's a significant difference between this film and A New Hope when it comes to context. If you watch A New Hope, it's the only film. You know, you the context that you need is there in the film, or you're wondering about it later, but it's not like we have anything else to compare it to. You take episode seven, put that out there with very little context, like what's the deal with the Resistance and the Republic? Where did the First Order come from? Who were the Knights of Wren? Who's this Snoke guy? And certain aspects of that, uh, some of which will be answered later, some of which, though, should have been context in this film to clarify things. Um, And I think you do cause a lot of disappointment amongst some viewers because we are now used to the prequels and Empire and Jedi where... We already had some context, or if we didn't already have that context, we sort of knew that it was coming in the form of you know, books, comics, whatever. That that the Lucasfilm Star Wars brand was going to wind up filling in the gaps. Going, They can't have assumed, well, they shouldn't have assumed, maybe they did. They shouldn't have assumed going into this film that it should be just like A New Hope, and we didn't need the context. That people didn't expect more context. You can't go into something now after nearly 40 years of Star Wars and six other movies, particularly movies that were supposedly the jumping off point of this with Return of the Jedi, and not give us some context of the middle that's a little more specific than what they did. If there's one failing the film has that is a glaring thing that I think most of the, the commentators and most of the reviewers have gotten absolutely right and that there's not a huge defense against, it's the lack of context. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now, spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. So maybe a place to start, because I know that this came up in your conversations that you were having uh, is that Stover effect thing that you mentioned. And that was kind of that term that I coined a while back. Uh, he did a great job of explaining what it was here a moment ago. But I always try to measure a novelization, which is beyond the films, technically, right? 
I tend yeah. to measure a novelization based on whether it had much of a Stover effect. Did it add much to the experience of the film? And this one, actually written by Alan Dean Foster, uh, that, I should probably step back and say, that was an immediate red flag to me, by the way. <laughs> having, having met the man and having had a chance to interview him years and years and years ago, back in like 2004 or so, having read the original novelization, having read Splinter of the Mind's Eye and The Approaching Storm, I got to say his writing has never really done much for me. And there was just something about him that kind of felt aloof. So I always kind of had this, I don't know, it's almost like I have a, not an aversion to him. I'm just kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I, I want to see him do something awesome Stover-esque to justify the aloofness, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what we got there was sort of mostly a paint-by-numbers, by-the-book adaptation where most of what we get that feels like it's new scenes were probably literally just cut scenes from the film. It didn't necessarily add a lot of extra depth unless he really did, and it just feels like it was stuff that was probably cut from an earlier version of the script. But I would say there was at least a mild Stover effect here, giving context where it needed to be for things like, for instance, how... You know, how was it that Poe Dameron eventually makes it back to the Resistance? It gives at least a little bit to that. So I, I would say it's a, I mean, it's not the strongest novelization we've gotten. That, I think, is still Revenge of the Sith. But I would put it there probably with, you know, the Attack of the Clones novelization or the Phantom Menace novelization in that it gave us the film and it gave us a little bit more context to it. So in that sense, it was worthwhile. I know there's a junior novelization that's coming, but as of the time we're recording this, it's still, I think it's still a couple of weeks away, but we can deal with that once that's actually out. See, I would say this is probably closest to Karen Travis's The Clone Wars novelization. Um, Stover did such a good job, added so much. It's like, it's like, okay, if Stover is the A game, I would say for, you know, Stover effect, uh, if that's the A bar, I would say I would give him like a C plus the Alan Dean Foster for this. It it did a lot, but it also, like you said, it could have all been deleted scenes. We don't necessarily know. I mean, we've, we've been told about certain scenes and there are certain deleted scenes that are not in the book. So it's like, okay, what, you know, who decided what deleted scenes made it in and what ones didn't. Uh, Cause like Maz bringing down the roof in the deleted scenes, not in this book at all. Uh, but so when I was talking with my brother-in-law, uh, one of the things that really drove him nuts was Kylo Ren basically being punked by Ray in the lightsaber duel. And I had just finished the audio book. I had just finished the novel. Uh, and, and I was telling him, you know, well, there were some aspects that were brought up into all of those that kind of, you know, built this picture. And I was explaining to him, you know, the this and the that of everything. And I explained to him the, uh, the great little fan comic out there about uh, Chewie where it showed Chewie with Ben Solo and, you know, them growing up and stuff. And then in the moment when Han gets, you know, well, you've got the spoiler warning. When Han gets stabbed through the chest... Uh, in, in this little hand comic that somebody hand drew, they have Chewie sighting down right between the eyes on Kylo Ren. And he remembers those moments of Ben and shifts and goes from between the eyes to down and shoots him in the side. Now, in the book, the book has Kylo Ren after he kills his father drop to his knees because he has had this internal fight going on throughout the book about how the light inside of him is his weakness. And he truly thinks that by killing his father, that that is the act that is going to set him free. And after he kills his father in the book, 
it doesn't work. He drops to his knees because he is weakened. He is weakened through the force. He is weakened through his conviction. So this is what I'm telling my brother. I'm like, okay, so, you know, he's, we know he was trained as a Jedi because he was the one that turned on Luke and Luke's order. So we know he's got some Jedi skills, but Snoke tells him your training's not complete. We're going to finish your training once Kylo has ran into Ray. And the book does a great example of that scene as well. When Kylo is pressing in, trying to find out what she knows about the droid in the map in the book, she is able to feel what he's doing and slips into his mind through the same access that he has gone into hers. And it completely freaks him out. So he's got these little conflicts going on that are completely lost in the film. You don't see it. And again, in that moment when he kills his father, it's Chewie shooting him that drops him to his knees. And I think that that's an integral edit part that they should have left because in the book, it's, it's him falling because of the weakness that he thought he was going to be destroying by killing his father. When that doesn't happen, he, it weakens him. And so you've got that moment. Then Chewie shoots him with a bowcaster that if you're watching throughout the film, knocks armored troopers clear across the damn room. People point out at the fact that Han never used the Wookiee blaster before. Oh, come on, Han, all this time you never used it before. Well, yeah, it's a big weapon. Usually only Wookiees fire it. You know, Han used it for his first time and he was really getting a kick out of it. Why? Because it blows people the hell away. So Ren has been damaged. He's doing that punching his side thing, which I loved. It was kind of like a legends nod, that whole, you know, fuel the force, the dark side through your pain and anger, right? He's punching the side where he's been shot by Chewie, his father's best friend, Uncle Chewie, that kind of thing. You know, adding to that rage. Well, Finn is a stormtrooper that was raised from birth in weapons combat. So he's got the lightsaber. He's already done one battle against a stormtrooper that seemed pretty dang badass, that stormtrooper traitor guy. So he's got some experience. He's fighting with Ren. And during the book, again, they have this moment when Finn takes the, the saber and hits Ren through the shoulder. When that moment happens in the book, Ren is like, I'm done toying with you. As in, he was toying with him the whole time. And at that moment, he flips the script and then boom, boom, two moves later, Finn is on the ground. So I explained that to my brother-in-law. He's like, okay, that makes sense. I'm like, now he gets to Ray. I'm like, and this is another great part that the book does that the film didn't do. When the lightsaber goes flipping past Ren to Ray, Ren turns around and says, it is you. And the word is, is in italics. It leaves you with the impression of, okay, he's recognizing something about her. It, it, that leads you to that whole angle of, okay, she's either a solo or a Skywalker. You know, that's, that's the angle I'm going with. That is has to reference that. So there's those angles, but then you stop and you think about the fact that Maz again, with deleted scenes and stuff, she was a force user. She was telling Ray ways to use the force. She goes, you know, when you close the eyes, you can feel it. The light surrounds you. Ren is mocking her. You need a teacher. She's up against the edge of that crack. She closes her eyes. Again, the book gives you some great descriptiveness. She explodes. I believe it talks about it being like a berserker rage, but it's from Ren's point of view. She comes out of nowhere, so it feels like a berserker rage. What she's doing is what we've seen in books like I, Jedi. You know, th those moments when the Jedi is up against the wall. Someone has to die. They're going to make that sacrifice. They've accepted it. And in accepting it, they become godlike. Began a Rysoed moment in the well of the world brain. You know, I am a play actor. This is my role. That happened for Ray. She, in that moment, she closed her eyes. She remembered what Maz said. The training kicked in. The light side of the force embraced her, swept her up, 
picked her up, did what had to be done. And that's what we saw in the movie. We saw the light side of the force reacting to what Ren has done. And as I'm explaining that to him, you know, with these different aspects and stuff that you get through the book and through the audio book, it makes this bigger picture. And he was a little angry. He's like, you know, I shouldn't have to, you know, read this stuff. And I'm like, you're right. But another thing that the audiobook adds to it, because even in the book, when she's standing over Ren and she strikes his lightsaber and she hits him in the face and she's standing over him with the lightsaber pointed down, the book you see in high, bold letters, kill him. In the audiobook, you hear Snoke say, kill him. Now, I had a very interesting conversation with Jazz Kopech, uh, a, a great friend of ours, great friend of the show, great friend of Star Wars Beyond the Films, as well as Star Wars Report in general, all our podcasts and stuff. Great all-around fan. And he was talking about the aspect of, what if Snoke was watching Ray? And I'm like, you know, that that came right to my mind. It was like, oh my god, if that is Snoke, because in the book, we also find out that Snoke had been following Ben Solo from the beginning, and Leia knew about it and kept it quiet. So she has this whole dialogue with Han about it. So it's like, okay, now if Snoke was watching Ben the whole time, and if Ray happens to be a Skywalker or a Solo too, who's to say that he wasn't watching her the whole time? And if the audiobook has any proof or any facts in it that they use Snoke's voice characteristic, if that was Snoke, that adds to that theory that Snoke was watching Ray the whole time and that he is trying to influence her as well through the force because of those questions of, well, how did she know how to use the mind trick? Well, the book does a great example of that as well. They explain how Ren just got done trying to force his way into her mind. So she's like, maybe I can try it on this stormtrooper. There is a lot of internal monologue that the book provides and the audiobook provides that the film doesn't provide. That is your Stover effect. It's very, very small. It's only to certain few scenes. There are scenes where Umkar Plutt uh, shows up at Maz Cantina, gets his arm ripped off, also talks more about the homing beacon. It's actual Imperial homing tracking beacon. So you're like, wait, is that like the one that they put on with Vader put on? And Han never just... So there's all these questions that kept coming up. But again, like we were talking in the spoiler-free part, it's just adding that anticipation. You know, we know that Ben Solo was... The, one of the Jedi or the Jedi that took down Luke's order. You know, Luke had a new Jedi order. It got decimated. We don't know what happened. We're not going to find that out in a book anytime soon because you can guarantee they're going to sit on that fact until we find out about it in the film. So I'm kind of like, that's another one of those conflicted moments for me where I'm like, I'm so emotionally conflicted. I want that story so desperately bad. I mean, you know, Nate, you're the timeliner. We figured out that Kylo is 29 in this film. Ray is 19. So about the time that he was Ben and he fell and he took out the order, that had been about the time she was dropped off at Jakku. You know, I mean, again, getting back to that angle that I am the Legends fan. My kids are all named after Legends. I'm like, please, God, let the Skywalker wife, you know, if if that's the route, if Rey is a Skywalker, let her mom be named Jaina Jade. That's all I care about. You know, that's my biggest fan theory right now. I want my girls to be candid. Yeah, it's purely selfish. Yeah, it probably ain't going to happen, but that's my pipe dream, and I'm going to smoke it. Good Lord, there's a lot of points you just hit there. Um... Okay, let me see if I can hit as many of them as as I took notes on. As you're saying that, I'm frantically writing, like, I want to make sure to mention this, mention this, mention this, mention this. Um, Kylo Ren is by far my favorite character in this film. Uh, he's a more complex psychological character. I know there's all those, he's just Darth Emo, man. Like, when he's in the battle and he's, like, smacking himself, God, it's like he's cutting himself. What a little pansy boy. You should have black hair and black clothes and be all, like... 
You know, talking about how life sucks all the time. And you're Darth Tantrum. You destroy stuff for no reason other than that you're annoying. Just this idea that he is this bad character because he's different than the Sith we've seen. Which I think is a breath of fresh air. I mean, the guy is... He's a young man. He was raised as a Jedi. He was essentially raised in the light side. He was tempted to the dark side. He's trying to sort of use both, which is something that's mentioned in the novel, but he doesn't want the lure of the light side because as they mention within the novel, they look at this as, you know, Vader is someone to be emulated because he became so strong in the dark side. He was trying to bring order, and that is what Snoke and Rin want to do. And they see Vader's failing as sentimentality. The fact that he had any sentiment and love left for his son, Luke, is what caused him in that moment to make what they think of as a bad decision, turn on the Emperor, kill him, and wind up dying himself. So it's this idea that he kind of wants to be able to use abilities tied into the dark and the light, be able to draw on just the force in general, but he doesn't want the lure of the light, which is an interesting thing because we usually hear about the lure of the dark, not the light. Um, love the psychological nature of the character. Um... The scene in which he is uh, confronting Han and winds up eventually killing Han, getting shot by Chewie. There's a lot of this sort of rumbling out there. And I think you can get this from the film itself, depending on you know how deeply you want to look into the psychology of it. There's a lot of this rumbling of, oh, well, it was just a trick. Right. He was just saying, you know, I need your help and stuff to lure Han in and kill him. And both in the novel and just in the way that I look at it when seeing the film, I don't see it as a trick. He really is feeling like he's being torn apart. He really does know what he has to do and isn't sure if he can go through with it. Of course, we now know that what he thinks he has to do is kill Han. But imagine Han walking up there. He doesn't know what that might mean. It might be, please, Dad, help me commit suicide when he pulls out his lightsaber. Uh, It could be, take this lightsaber and take me into custody somehow. Uh, Either way, it's Han having a really great character moment, especially comparing him now to what he, how we met him in A New Hope, of being someone who's willing to sort of sacrifice everything. He would do whatever it takes for his son at that point. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a scene that's often criticized. I love the psychology of the scene and the way that it could play out depending on what we think is perhaps going through Han's mind. See, and... And I was just, I'm going to read that real quick. Stunned by his own actions, Kylo Ren fell to his knees. Following through on the act ought to have made him stronger. A part of him believed. Instead, he found himself weakened. He did not hear the roar of the enraged Wookiee above, but he did feel the sting of the shot from the bowcaster as it slammed into his side, knocking him back on the walkway. Now, speaking of the bowcaster, though, uh, I can't agree with the way that you rationalize it. I think the idea that Han after decades of being partnered with Chewie, has never fired the bowcaster, is absolutely stupid. There's no way, logically, that makes any sense whatsoever. It was just there for stupid gags in the film and really should never have been there in the first place. And if anything, I mean, granted, Kylo Ren has armor of a kind. You would think that if it can hit a stormtrooper and send him flinging through the air, that that blast that Kylo takes to his side should probably have done more than just knock him to his knees. Yeah. Um, yeah, not not a fan of how the bowcaster is used in the film. I love the fact that it that it has such a big punch, but yeah, Han, Han's line no. should have been like, "I should be using this more often" or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that, where it doesn't seem like it's the first time he's ever touched the stupid thing. Uh, regarding the idea of Chewie shooting Kylo, now there's this argument of, well, should he have shot Kylo Ren and hit him in the side? Should he have tried to kill him? You would think that in a Wookiee rage, he would have tried to kill him, but I think you're right, and I think that that. The film, uh, the, the film, the the 
fan comic strip is right, that this is Chewie not being willing to kill the son of his best friend, no matter how dark he's become. I mean, it's very much sort of like, the, you know, I, they're still good in Vader, so I can't kill my own father kind of thing. Um, but mm-hmm. imagine the fan uproar and the dichot- or not dichotomy we would have seen, the, uh, the juxtaposition we would have seen and how people would have been uh, emotionally affected if maybe they wanted a different bad guy for episode eight and it had been Chewie to take revenge either then or later and kill Kylo Ren. You would have Chewie in a movie in canon killing the son of Han. In this case, the only son of Han. Whereas in Legends, we had that seminal moment that was so big that it actually made newspapers, almost like Superman's death made news in newspapers, of Chewie letting himself die trying to save the youngest son, Anakin Solo, of Han in Legends. To, to have it be so completely turned on its head that it's that in one case it's love protecting and sacrificing and the other it would be simply killing out of vengeance and either way it winds up being about Chewbacca and a son of Han Solo. I think that would have been a fandom enraging kind of thing that would have brought a lot of people who are sort of on the fence of do I uh, stay away from Disney canon or not because I love Legends so much it would have probably caused some of those on the fence to say screw it and side with the Legends purists yeah see when I rewatched this you know I, it was my fourth watching and I'm watching Chewie in that moment and I have that little that little fan comic strip in my mind and you know Ren is the first person he shoots, and yet Ren is the only one that survives. Every single stormtrooper Chewie shoots after Ren is a is a one shot, one kill. And I mean, and I just get back to that. I'm like, that is just such a cool moment. And that whole scene is one of my favorite scenes. I mean, you watch as as Finn and Ray are, are up above and the lights trailing down on Han and Ren on the on the little path there, and as the light just sucks up, you just watch the last of the light inside Ben just die. Uh, I just, that's such a great moment. And yet every time I watch that scene, I'm picking something new up from it. Now, kind of getting past that segment, getting into the duel that was mentioned. And yes, there's a lot of people with the, well, how could Finn and Ray ever stand up to Kylo Ren? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's stupid. One, as you said, Kylo Ren is injured, right? He's trying to fuel himself with the dark side, punching the, the wound over and over again. But he's been pretty seriously injured, and he's just gone through that moment that was supposed to have freed him from his his mental issues and apparently didn't. But if you actually take a look at the scene, one, we know that Finn has at least some prowess with melee weapons because we see that when he's fighting against uh, the stormtrooper that was referred to as, as TR-8R, one of the, that was actually a buddy of his during Nines. training. Nines. Um, so you've got that issue there. We've seen him do that. We assume he's got some training, so if he's kind of uh, amped up, and he is very angry, he does attack first, very much like Ray attacks first. Most of the light side people are attacking attacking first in this movie. Uh, knowledge and defense never for attack apparently See, is out the window. And that's also a line that's in the book. Ren talks to Ray in the interrogation, and, and I mean, they mention the part, he's like, oh, you want to kill me? But in the book, he's like, I haven't even done anything and you want to kill me. Mm-hmm. So we've got this, this element of uh, they should, Finn at least should have some skill, which eventually, you know, once, you know, Ren is just angry enough, he winds up taking Finn out, almost kills him. Although it's interesting that in the novel, it's a slash to the front, not the back. And then we've got Ray. 
And Ray is the one that has the biggest question. We've seen her using handheld weapons previously on Jakku, but there's that question of, well, how can she possibly be in a lightsaber duel with Rin? And for me, one of my favorite moments of the film is the, the saber going to her hand instead of his because the way that they reuse the music cue from, at least from A New Hope, when they find uh, uh, the Lars Moisture Farm destroyed. And it, it's given new context here. But if you look at the battle... She's being driven back the entire time until she is, is the whole, you know, you need to teach her. I can teach you about the force. And she opens herself up to the force for, you know, it controlling her actions, obeying her commands, you know, guiding her kind of like Luke with the remote. Um, she's being pushed back the entire time. She doesn't have an advantage in this fight. It's not like they are equals the way that people are making it out to be or that somehow she is winning as people are making it out to be. She only starts to win once she essentially opens herself up to the force and it's the force that's doing it. You can make the comparison. Again, we could bring Alan Dean Foster back into conversation in Legends, you can make the comparison that this is similar to Luke opening himself up in the Force and being guided by the spirit of Obi-Wan in Splinter of the Mind's Eye in a duel with Darth Vader prior to the events of The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, there, there are plenty of, of things that make that scene make more sense for one who is willing to actually, you know, look at it and look at how the battle progresses. I did yeah. love the... It is you, and I'm surprised that that wasn't in the film. I wonder if that's because they just didn't want to you know, reveal the fact that maybe he knew her in the film, or if maybe they've pulled a Lucas and changed their mind on whether he should have known her. So we won't know exactly whether that line is actually meant to be there still until later, which should be interesting. Uh, and other lines that they have added in the novel with Snoke. Uh, you mentioned Snoke um, sort of watching Ben and whether he was watching Ray. Yeah. I find it interesting, uh, we know that, that Kylo Ren is, is older. Pablo Hidalgo said basically that he was born within that year after Return of the Jedi. He's 29 to 30, she's 19, so they're not twins, as was postulated so many times. No, they're not twins. Please stop with that stupid theory that can't happen. Um, but he, we find out that Snoke, I said, well, if Snoke was watching Ben, how long has he been around? We find out in the novelization, Snoke has been around since at least the Clone Wars and probably before watching events take place. So Snoke is this background character that's been there for a while. That's why a lot of people are saying, well, maybe he's Darth Plagueis or maybe he's this person, maybe he's this person, um, to try to give more context to who he might be. Uh, I found it interesting, two things we find out about Han and, and Ben slash Ren. We find out, as you mentioned that Snoke was watching in the background all during his life and twisted him to the dark side, Leia knew he was watching and didn't tell Han because she was afraid of the brash action that Han might take or how Han in, and his sort of more uh, bombastic personality, you might say, his, his less pacifistic personality, might have affected Ben. It's sort of, I'm, I'm protecting our son from his own father thing. And that really kind of made me think poorly of Leia at that moment when we heard that. We also find out, though, and this goes back to what you were saying about the age difference and how around the time that Ben would have been becoming a Knight of Ren and, and turning on Luke and all that kind of stuff um, would have been around the time that we see Ray dropped off, apparently, to Unkar Plutt, of all people. Yeah, it's a great person to leave your kid with. He's going to say, you know, sorry, you're going to starve if you don't bring me some junk. Um, which makes you kind of wonder if he's maybe different than he presents himself to be. Um, but that would have been probably around the same time. I find it interesting that it's in the novel that they note that Han never saw Ben as a man. 
which suggests, yeah. unless that's meant to be metaphorical, that he always looked at his son, no matter how old he was, as his little boy. And it's it, it, then it a literal interpretation would be that what happened at Luke's Jedi Academy had to have happened sometime when he would have been what mid-teens or younger, which mm-hmm. even more makes you say, well, wait. How could someone of that age, unless they're extremely powerful, as we see here with him stopping blaster bolts and stuff with telekinesis, have ever possibly turned the tables on Luke's academy? Unless maybe Luke wasn't even there and just comes back to see the ruins, for all we know. How could this kid have turned on him? There's a lot of interesting angles that we can pull out of just the viewing and the novelization, whereas in some cases it's giving us answers. Like, you know, how does... Poe Dameron get back and who was that woman we're focusing on that we're supposed to be apparently caring about Corsella um, when Hosnian Prime gets destroyed. Who is this lady? Well, it was Leia's aide that she sent to go try to make their case to the Republic Senate again. Um, there are times it gives us answers, but a lot of times all it does is sort of deepen the questions or add a different corollary to the question. Yeah, well, like take Ren. This is something me and my brother-in-law were talking about. He's like, well, well, isn't he Sith trained? I said, well, we don't even know if Snoke's a Sith. All we know about Ren is that Ren trained as a Jedi. Ren's the student, we theorize, at least they kind of lean heavily that he's the student that turned and brought the order down, and that he is a master of the Knights of Ren. And that we know that his training is incomplete. So is it Sith training? He's, we've been told it's training in the darkness. That's all Snoke really said. I mean, and you were, you were mentioning the theory that Snoke might be Plagueis. And that's a, another thing I brought up with my brother-in-law. I'm like, there's no even guarantee that if he is Plagueis, that Plagueis is still a moon. I mean, there are so many angles. And that's what I was saying. I'm like, to really come at canon and, and to give it the benefit of the doubt, if you know anything about Legends, you have to look at canon as an alternate universe. You know, I mean, <laughs> there's just no getting around it. There's just way too many differences that that we can't take for guarantees anymore. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the training of Ren, it's like, okay, what does being a master of the Knights of Ren mean? We still don't even know what that means. I mean, are the Knights of Ren's the equivalent of Sith? Is that the same kind of training? Or is the Knights of Ren basically like more of a Jedi-like training? I mean, there's so little they tell us even about that. But we do know that whatever happened during Luke's new Jedi order was so big, bad and traumatizing that not just Han Solo walked away, but even Luke Skywalker. Cause like I was telling my brother-in-law in legends, Han walks away when Chewie dies. I mean, him walking away is, is something that we can kind of expect to happen, but Luke never walked away. He lost Mara, didn't walk away. He's lost a lot of stuff and never walked away. In canon now, he's walked away. And i that's a story I am just, I'm dying to know more about, man. You talk about Snoke. I mean, maybe Snoke, maybe he's Han's father. And maybe there's supposed to be some irony. And maybe Ben doesn't know. And when he's praying to Grandfather Vader, maybe he's actually kind of praying to Grandfather Snoke. You're right there on the whole walking away thing. There's definitely precedent for Han walking away. I've brought this up multiple times in conversation with people say, well, well, why would Han have just walked away? Going through that kind of personal trauma, he's walked away before. In Legends, they thought that was the natural thing that he would do. Now, to have Leia 
kind of go on and do her own thing with the resistance, you can make the argument that that's not exactly like her, but even to an extent it is because that was a time when she was throwing herself heavily into the new Jedi Order uh, war with the Yuuzhan Vong. So she didn't have to go anywhere to throw herself into her work. The work was already there. Luke walking away, that kind of boggles my mind. The idea, Unless he sort of thought of himself as a flashpoint that he has to get himself out of there or it's going to cause more conflict. Mm -hmm. It seems like he's sort of taking, well... I guess he's following the Jedi pattern, right? Oh, I did not destroy Sidious into exile. I must go of Yoda where it's like, <laughs> oh, I could do some good in the universe. I screwed up this one time. I'm not even going to bother to try anymore. I'm going into exile and I'll wait for it to be someone else's job that I can train later, which is kind of possibly what Luke's doing if, if Rey is there to be trained. But it's interesting because you never saw that, as you mentioned, you never really see Luke walking away like that in legends i mean we see him walking away kind of twice in canon now we got this and that moment back um in star wars uh from marvel uh, there's a moment where he he was ready to walk away because he doesn't have enough training yet yeah. um but i will say that even though luke didn't really want he didn't walk away from his responsibilities say after mara died um uh, after the yuzhan vong war i mean he didn't walk away then he was sort of forced to walk away and seemed to be at least somewhat okay with it in Fate of the Jedi. So here, it took a betrayal on a familial level and uh, the end of his Jedi Academy dreams, so to speak, a la, you know, maybe Kip Duran or Kueller or all the tons and tons of, of legend students of Luke who go bad and he's like, I'll roll with it. I'll roll with it. Um, <laughs> but... It, it apparently, in Legends, it just took a trial. Here, it took something personal. See, I, I look at that as, as one of those aspects of the Legends kind of thing. I think of when Jason goes to the dark side and Jaina tells Luke, you can't do this. I have to do this. And her point in that moment is, you're emotionally conflicted here. This is the guy that killed your wife. Now, that that's assuming that... Ben killed Luke's wife and that Luke's wife is even in this film. We don't even know if Luke has a wife. That's me assuming. But if that is the case, that the direction I'm going from this is, you know, maybe Ben is the one that killed Luke's wife and Luke recognizes that he is at such a pivotal moment that if he doesn't walk away, he could become something even eviler. He could become the next Darth Vader because he could give in to his emotions. And so he has removed himself from the playing field. That's something I can see happening. Uh, but but we're really getting into the, the next shifting phase of this. So before we get into how this mirrors elements of the EU, the other thing I wanted to talk about that was left out of the film that is really picked up on the, the audiobook and in the book is that the Republic itself gets decimated in the film. It's, it's very hard to notice, but when they fire off Starkiller Station, they're blowing up, what do you call it, Hoskell Prime or whatever the name of it was. Uh, they take out the capital of the New Republic. That bearded-looking Bothan guy is the Chancellor. They assassinate the Chancellor. The fleet sitting above that planet, that is the Republic fleet. It's been decimated, too. There is a moment in the book where Poe and his pilots want to come back down for Han, Chewie, Ray, and Finn and make sure they're okay. And Leia's like, no, you got to go. You got to get out of there. You are literally all we have left of a flight of a you know, a flight force. There is no more Navy. You're it. Get out of there. 
And that was something that really like, once I saw the film after reading that and, and going back to that moment, I was like, wow, that now there is a shakeup come episode eight. You've got the resistance in a sense. Now the resistance is the Republic's military because the Republic's military has been wiped out. They were together, but not together. The new, Rep the new Republic was in a sense giving aid to the resistance, but because of that, they had the backlash, the backlash crippled their leadership. And now the resistance is in a position to be the front line for the Republic. I mean, that is a crazy place for episode eight to be standing. I love the political concept that they've got going on here. I know a lot of folks say, well, it's just confusing. Why is there a resistance and a republic? But what you've got going on here, essentially from a historical parallel, it's a Cold War, right? There's been a treaty of some kind that is basically, it's called the Galactic Concordance, but it's basically divided the galaxy almost like uh, the Iron Curtain. And you've got the Republic side in Republic space and Imperial space, the Imperial remnant or a rump state of the Empire that has slowly been sort of assumed by uh, the First Order that is now essentially in charge of the Imperial territory for the most part, at least the, the way that it's being presented within some of the other uh, uh, tie-in materials here, very much like, say— um, oh, uh, the Nazis coming to power and taking over the former Weimar Republic. Uh, and then you've got this idea that since it's a Cold War, you don't want outright conflict. What are you willing to put up with to avoid that? And you see that constantly during the real Cold War. Uh, you have the, the Cuban Missile Crisis that doesn't end up in all-out war, though it comes close. You have the shooting down of an American U-2. You have spies being captured where any of these things could theoretically erupt in a war. It's like Barack Obama and his red line in Syria. You know, if, if chemical weapons are ever used, we're coming in, which was bull because chemical weapons got used and we did squat. Um, because you don't want to get into an active conflict like that if you can avoid it. So the Republic, a representative democracy, presumably, is trying to keep that from happening. So the First Order is able to sort of act with impunity because they know the, that the Republic won't act. So a resistance forms that has that deniability. We're not officially of the Republic, so we can act. But we have to have somewhere to get our support from. So they try to get that tacit, somewhat secretive, you know, kind of that an open secret. Like, it's a secret, but everybody kind of knows it's happening anyway, you know, kind of like Bill Clinton's affairs. Um, we, you just take in the resources from the Republic and hope that it's going to work. I find it interesting that with the Republic, they've changed it to something a little more egalitarian than it was before. Coruscant is no longer the capital, although they never – that confused a lot of people thinking that Hosnian Prime was Coruscant in the film apparently. But yeah. the capital isn't Coruscant anymore. Not only do they have elected leaders, they've dropped Supreme from the name, it's just Chancellor now. But another thing that changes as election cycles happen, and apparently it's not to the home world of the, of the Chancellor, although it happened to be the first time on Chandrilla with Mon Mothma, um, the capital rotates as elections happen too. So Hosnian Prime was just the newest place that became the seat of the Senate and the seat of the Chancellor. So now that it's been destroyed... And in the film, they talk, or in the uh, the novel, they talk about how it's been destroyed, the fleet's gone, you know, how essentially the Republic has been beheaded here. It kind of makes me wonder what happens next. Like, if somebody took out Washington, D.C., the U.S. could still go on, but you'd have to have a rapid deployment to try to set up a new capital somewhere. Um, we've seen this in plenty of instances where people have gone from one capital to another. I mean, you, uh, the U.S. has had previous capitals before we had... Uh, Washington, D.C. You look at something like Russia, they tended to keep going back and forth between which capital they wanted to call their capital at different points in time. Um, so if Hosnia Prime is gone, 
and you've lost that chancellor, but the planets represented by the Republic are still out there, who fills the power vacuum? Is it the resistance? Does this spark the Republic to act in a way that means the resistance really doesn't need to be a resistance anymore? It can be the primary uh, government and primary military force, uh, and the Republic is going to take action, uh, or are they perhaps going to see this and like, oh my god, we shouldn't have been backing the resistance. If only we hadn't, Hosnian Prime would not have been destroyed, which is BS, but they could rationalize it that way. We have to separate ourselves even more from the resistance. The real-life politics that we've seen shows that in human nature, those types of things could go several different directions. It's not a guarantee where Episode Eight's going to start politically on the good guy side of things, which I find intriguing, but something that's often overlooked in these discussions. There's so much about how confusing it is to have a Republican, a resistance, and so much time spent trying to explain that, that the implications of the end of the film for the Republican resistance are often ignored in the discussions. Well, I'm just blown away by, in the new canon universe, how often the books and even the films are making the Rebels look like legitimate bad guys. I mean, aftermath, they flat out, the rebels flat out lied to get the public to turn on the empire. You know, I mean, it's just. Well, dude, and, and, and let's put context here for those who haven't read the book. It's not just that they lied. They faked a, an imperial officer killing a child as propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that has been like in, in multiple stories. Now we're seeing instances where the rebels are willing to. The ends justify the means, which is a very weird thing, because when you think about legends, that was always something that the Republic was like, no, the ends never justify the means. You know, they were like, that's the Sith thing to do. And it's like, that's a concept that they're not even concerned with right now. They're like, let's just take these. You know, Leia's like, you kill Vader, Chewie, do it. It's like, wow, they're hardcore. Well, and that's, and that's kind of the whole concept of the Vader down crossover, right? Vader's down. Kill his ass! I don't <laughs> care what it costs! Kill him! Yeah, that's that's definite... that, that was my impression of Leia uh, in The Force Awakens. No, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm <laughs> kidding. Everybody's griping about her voice. I'm kidding. But there's definitely that aspect there. Uh, one other thing Jazz had again brought up, uh, he was chatting with uh, somebody from the story group, and they were talking about the whole princess general angle and you know maybe that they did the whole marvel comic for a reason and they were like yeah kind of tongue-in-cheek you know there was kind of a reason there and i was like you know that kind of makes sense i although i don't know if necessarily that comic was really needed to explain why leia is no longer a princess but okay so we keep hitting this idea that there are things from legends that can be used as comparisons and context for this to kind of give us a way to discuss this in a broader sense beyond just canon, or even in terms of looking how canon and EU have differed or have followed the same lines. Let's head in that direction, and let's close out this episode with specific Legends parallels that we're seeing within this film. Not necessarily just in this time period, but do we see some parallels between things that have come before, before the reboot, and what we see in The Force Awakens? And then next time, we'll open our episode with the question of whether a reboot was necessary? If so, why? If not, where could they have cut it? That sort of thing. But how about some parallels here? I know you've been looking for a lot of them, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, for me, it's like little things like the fact that Luke had a new Jedi order. Okay. Check mark. Okay. We got that one. Uh, a solo son turning to the dark side. Check seems to be uh, there. 
it does kind of look like Ray's going to be the one that's going to have to confront said son that's fallen to the dark side. And if she turns out to be a family member, Hey, check in another box. I mean, there's a lot of those type of elements that are definitely the same. We watch, you know, like I said, Ren punching himself in the side that totally brought back that angle of Jason solo as Darth Cadis when he's using his pain to fuel his, you know, emotions and stuff. Uh, Kylo Ren's lightsaber. It's used with a flawed Kyber crystal. That's another one of those, you know, things that they've just kind of, they, They've lifted a lot of things, and and that's the aspect about making Legends a universe that you can pick from, like Lucas had. There's all sorts of ideas you could take and mine and and retool. Uh, but there are some things that it seems to be like that they've completely lifted up from Legends itself. And so, you know, the Kyber Crystal is definitely one of those that is like, okay, yeah, that was straight up from it. Uh, Han walking away, like we talked about, well, you know, well, that's... Well, I don't know about uh, the Kyber Crystal... That was something that was in early drafts of A New Hope that eventually got cut and then got used in Splinter the Mind's Eye, spelled in a different way, and then got brought back in as Kyber, K-Y-B-E-R, in The Clone Wars, which, granted, is also in Legends, but it's canon as well. So I'm not sure that I would count the Kyber Crystal as something lifted or paralleling the the Legends continuity. I think Kyber Crystal, because of The Clone Wars, it's, it's just as much a Lucasism as anything else canonical. True, true. And there will be some of those too, because it is a slippery slope, especially anything I think in the last 10 years, you know, when, when legends as the EU was really that quote unquote official continuity. And it was like the lines were blurred more where everyone felt like, yeah, sea cannon is one universe. And yet there were other people going, well, but the clone wars is doing its own thing. Cause it's T cannon, you know? So there will be some aspects like that, but the whole aspect of it being an artificial type crystal or being imperfect, I thought that was an interesting little twist. Yeah, I think the biggest parallels to me, I mean, it's interesting in that some things seem to happen with a different time frame, but they're still paralleling. Like you said, having a solo child go to the dark side. Uh, And again, sort of doing it, thinking that they're carrying on some type of, of necessary thing. I think that it's, it's not as clear with Ben slash Kylo Ren why he's doing it beyond just wanting to continue what Vader started. But if his, the idea is that he wants to create order, to an extent, that parallels why Jason Solo did what he did. Uh, mm-hmm. We see a Solo child who's gone to the dark side who is using abilities we really haven't seen much before, like the, the pausing of a blaster shot in midair, which... You know, we saw with Jason Solo, he went through all those different parts of his journey, his five-year journey that eventually, uh, Star Trek-style five-year journey, right? That eventually (laughs) give him these other abilities. Um, Seeing the female go up against him as probably being the one to have to take him down is a big deal. Uh, The fact that even though they didn't dip into the well of clones a la the Thrawn trilogy, there was still that sense with the Empire that we need this particular type of soldier that's different than just a regular recruit. So they went in that direction and we got uh, the, the sort of brainwashed soldiers. Of course, the idea of Luke having someone who turns to the dark side early on as he's starting his academy, we've seen that tons of times within the Legends continuity. Uh, we mentioned already Han walking away as necessary, uh, or at least as he feels is necessary. Um, I don't know. I think that the... The most interesting thing to me with this is where they've diverged from Legends, or at least from what we would have expected. But I think the context is interesting in that the context is also somewhat similar 
to something we frequently saw in Legends, even though it's not exactly the same. Because in Legends, you've got that treaty between the Empire and the Republic, the New Republic. But the treaty comes about like 15 years after Return of the Jedi, because it's coming about as we end the Hand of Thrawn duology. So there's a longer period of direct struggle. Here, there's another treaty that ends the direct struggle and allows both sides to still exist. It just happens to happen a year after Jedi instead. Kind of like changing the timing of, well, Han and Leia get married, but not as late. Uh, Han and Leia have a kid, at least one kid, but it doesn't happen as late. Um, I like the idea, I find it interesting, that they kept the idea of sort of an imperial remnant existing, and what we tended to see in legends was that frequently there'd be warlords or some old general, someone like a uh, a Grand Admiral Thrawn, an Atasi Dalla, someone like that, who is going to bring imperial forces together because they're they're not satisfied with the status quo, whatever that status quo may be, and they start taking the fight back to the New Republic, which is essentially kind of what the First Order is doing. Granted, they're doing it later, and they're doing it uh, in a way that sort of makes them the time. It seems like they're Unless we learn something different, you know, in the canonical novels and comics that are coming, it seems as though they are the big time that this has happened, as opposed to it being something happening over and over and over again, then a treaty, and then it kind of stops. Um, the, the fact that in both cases they acknowledge the idea that just because the Emperor and Vader are dead doesn't mean there is no Empire anymore. Um, that the struggle does still go on. I would say that, and this is something I think that Jen brought up when we did uh, the... Rebels Roundtable episode, she brings up a good point that when it comes to the big three, and really Chewbacca too, but especially the big three, Luke, Leia, and Han, based on this film, they don't get a happy ending. And there was all this talk for years with the Legends continuity that, oh, if you bring the Emperor back in Dark Empire, if you have the possibility of children going to the dark side and the tragedies of Anakin Solo dying in the Yuuzhan Vong War, Jason Solo having to be killed by Jaina because he's become Darth Kytus and all this stuff, that you're taking away the happy ending for the characters. Mara dying, you're taking away the happy ending. One, I would argue that the ending for the characters in Legends was certainly much happier than what we got here. But it Mm. seems as though... You could, and I haven't seen this a lot in criticism of the film, but it seems as though you could very much hurl those accusations of, wow, you've just undermined Return of the Jedi to an extent because now all these characters we thought were getting their happy ending, they're freaking miserable, mm-hmm. right? Luke is off, you know, hanging out on that planet that, at least in the script, is called Ach 2 or something like that, A H C H T O. You've got Leia. And Han, who've lost a child, have had a rift between them. Han's not even sure if he really sort of fits who he used to be at all anymore. Uh, They eventually are going to lose the child, and Han's going to die. It's just, woo! You know, for those who thought that that the EU or Legends went to somewhat of a dark place at times with these characters, it did, but it kind of spread them out so that to an extent we still had that feeling that maybe in the end it's sort of a happy ending, they just faced more obstacles along the way, some of them more horrible than others. But in this case, it really does kind of feel as though uh, the shroud of the dark side has fallen, so to speak. And we've got all of that tragedy compressed <laughs> into like one film and a few moments of backstory that make it seem as this this is the big three didn't get a happy ending. They, they got a couple of years or something, you know? 
No, I mean, that's part of the conflictions I have. I mean, you know, we went with the big three being untouchable to have them kill off Han. It's like, you know, Crucible, Denning, come on. I mean, you know, I mean, that gets back to the continued legends. Like, you could give us these stories now. You're giving them in the films. But, uh, you know, the happier times. I shared a post last night on my private uh, Facebook page where I've got, I had Jaina in my arms and she she fell asleep. And I said, I'm just saying, Han Solo got robbed. And, and that, that I think, and that was when I was watching the film, that was the one thing that got to me too, was those happier times. He had three children. He had a daughter, not just a son. Uh, you know, I, I have three children. I don't have two sons. I have two daughters. Okay. I have one son. I've lost a son. You know, I mean, I've got a bigger family, but having a daughter profoundly changes you as a father versus having a son. There are different aspects of your personality that change when you have a daughter. You know, I mean, when you have a son, typically you're not playing Barbies with your boy. <laughs> you typically you're playing GI Joes or something like that or, or cars, those kind of things. But with your daughter, there's tea times and things like that. I mean, you know, I, I took Jaina out. We went down to uh, the local Chinese place, China Hut, because she likes tea. We go down there and we have the tea. My wife doesn't like going down there. So we bring her stuff up when we're done eating and drinking our tea. So me and her go down there every, you know, two weeks or so and we have our tea. And, and that's the angle that I was really, when I was watching the film for my first time, that really, really, really upset me for Han because in canon Han was always my favorite character in legends. It was always Luke. And I really felt like, you know, in a lot of ways Han got a shaft. That was probably one of the hardest things for me, uh, which I really want to touch on when we were doing our year in review. Uh, I believe it was in the comics one. We were talking about, you know, well, what if, uh, you know, Han and them have a son and his son's name is going solo. And, and we were making all these references and I'm like, Neither one of us said it, but Ben Solo. He's Ben Solo. <laughs> I was like, it ended up being, it, it fell right into our joke and we missed that one, man. We missed it. Uh, but some of the other things that jumped up to me when the film happened was a lot of New Jedi Order connections. You know, we lost Chewie on Serpendal and Han flew the Falcon away from a planet that was being blown up and Chewie's body was never recovered. We had a similar event now. Han's body was not recovered. They flew away. The planet becomes a sun. You know, that was another one of those things. Uh, you mentioned the Imperial Remnant. Another thing about that that I found was very interesting was that the Imperial Remnant is actually located in the same section of space that Legends Imperial Remnant ended up being. Uh, that was another little thing. Uh, the stormtroopers that you mentioned, um, they were... Adopted as children, kind of like the Jedi, but raised like clones from infancy. So there was also some little similarities. Uh, another Snoke rumor. People have rumored that he may have been a fallen Jedi. Now, if that's the case, you're looking at a Darth Krayat type analogy here. Uh, Darth Krayat was a Jedi that fell. He disappeared for a long time. It came up much later, and Luke had a slight confrontation with him. In fact, he was part of why Jason Solo went to the dark side, because originally... When he went, when he did his flow walking visions, he saw Darth Krayt on the throne and he saw Alana next to him. And so Jason went to the dark side so Alana wouldn't fall. And that was the big thing was, was that was it. And we didn't find that out until it was his ghost in the well uh, on that one planet in the middle when they were doing all that stuff with Ableth and he come up out of that well of apparitions or whatever. And he's talking to him and he's like, no, Alana was the one standing next to him. And it was like, that was your epiphany. It was like, that's why he did everything he did to save his daughter. Oh, you know? And so there's that angle when we move forward with this, it's like, 
is Ren going to be a character that can be redeemed? You know, do we want him redeemed? There's an angle there that I'm like, okay, if Ren is not planned to be redeemed, if they are planning to pull a Jason and Jaina solo where Jason solo is going to be killed at the end of the books, then what we see in the force awakens, we watch the dark side awaken in Ren, just as we see the light side awaken in Ray and Ray is poised to be the Jaina solo to take out Jason in this regard. So there's all these similarities as well that, I mean, you know, if you're a fan like you and me, Nate, you cannot help but see the similarities. But when I was sitting there talking with my brother-in-law, he didn't have that information. So as I'm bringing these up, he's like, Oh, Oh, you know, these great epiphanies. So if you're a fan out there that has never read legends or anything like that, and you don't want to take the time, get a friend out there that has and pick their brain or, or to the other side of it. Like my brother-in-law is saying, I don't think I should have to read the force awakens novel or listen to the audiobook to get these crucial bits that should be in the film. I agree with you and I agree with him. And so if you don't want to take that time, find a friend like me that has done it. Sit down and chat with him because I guarantee you at the end of that 30 minute conversation, I left him feeling a lot better about the film. He was ready to go back and watch it again and felt like, you know what? I need to go back and watch this again. And honestly, you do. If you're conflicted about this film, if you don't like certain aspects of it, keep watching it. Keep finding reasons to tear it apart. Keep finding reasons you love it. Just keep watching it. You're going to find new things, new insights every time. Uh, you know, I, like I said, that's that whole regurgitating process for me. I still don't know where I'm going to be. I mean, you, you and me, we're both putting this as number one and we're both of that mindset of like that can change. You know, we both recognize that we've been in this fandom long enough to know that, you know, what comes out tomorrow on the bookshelf could change how we interpret the film and that can be good and bad. Yeah. And the more minutiae you look at, the more parallels you can see, uh, whether we're talking about, Hey, there's a black X-wing. All of a sudden, or, uh, hey, Luke's lightsaber was recovered from Cloud City, and it winds up in the hands of a woman who is going to be using it. Or, oh, look, there is an Imperial faction, the First Order, that tends to be very young because of their background. And, well, wasn't there a second Imperium in Young Jedi Knights that had a bunch of young Imperials, etc., etc.? Um, what I find probably interesting about this is that question, of, you know, what about Kylo Ren? Can he be redeemed and such? Because if you look back at interviews that were given back in the 80s. Back before Lucas said, there was only ever meant to be six, which is before he said, I said I wasn't going to make it more. I didn't say somebody else couldn't, and that sort of thing. There was a time when the plan, as stated to the public, was nine films uh, after it had been 12 and 1. Uh, and at the time that it was stated to be nine films, there were interviews, I think it was mainly with Mark Hamill, where he laid out things about how George had talked about coming back as the Obi-Wan Kenobi-style character because of the time in which the films would be made and how old he would be at the time, etc., etc. And one of the things talked about was the idea that whereas the prequels are the fall of Anakin and the birth of Luke and Leia, the original trilogy is the child redeems the parent. Yeah. In the sequel trilogy... It was talked about, even then, that it would be the story of essentially a parent, or I guess the parent's generation in this case perhaps, having to redeem the child. Yep. Which is what we're essentially getting if we have Ben Solo possibly being redeemable, needing to be redeemed with the help of someone like a Luke and such. Though, I'm kind of hoping that it's more redeemed by someone who's more of a peer with the help of that other generation. Otherwise, 
you got to wonder what Ray's role could be in that whole thing. As mm-hmm. to the question of, well, I shouldn't have to read this stuff to understand the film. One, no, you really shouldn't. You should be able to enjoy a film at least, even if you don't have all the context. You should be able to enjoy a film without needing all that information. I think some of that information that we've talked about was necessary context that should have been in the film. Some of it not necessarily uh, needing to be in the film. But that said, the whole, well, I shouldn't have to read the books and the comics to get to the films. We are in an era now in which it is all equal. Thanks to what the story group has said, it is all canon. It is all one level. Anything that's in a comic or a book that is considered canon is just as valid as what's happening in the films. I imagine you're going to see more of this type of thing where something that might feel like it's integral doesn't wind up in a film because it's covered in something else. Just think about the way they handled Zare Leonis. We introduce Zare Le- or were introduced to Zare Leonis in Breaking Ranks back in Rebels Season 1. We see him again later in Vision of Hope in Season... Well, it was later in Season 1 where he talks about how he's going off to the Academy on Arcanus. And they lay the foundation of he's looking for his sister and that's why he's doing what he's doing. We get a book series that tells the entire story, including an appearance by characters from Rebels, that, unless Jason Fry's feeding me a line of crap, is not tied into an episode. It just brings those characters in without them being in an episode with Zare again, and that whole story gets resolved. If you care about the character of Zare Leonis and what happened, you have to read those books because it is not resolved on screen. It's simply set up on screen. And I think we're going to see that a little bit more, and... Those who were, I, I, and we said this plenty of times, there's a great irony to those who were saying, I hate legends. You shouldn't, have, they're not equal to the film. They, they didn't really happen. Go ahead and reboot it and wipe it out because I want to be able to just watch the films and not read books and comics that don't count are now in a position where, oh, they have rebooted. They did push that off to become a separate continuity as legends. And you know what? Now, more than ever, If you want the whole story, you can't just watch the movies. You have to watch the cartoons or you have to read the books, read the comics and such. Careful what you wish for. You just might freaking get it. Yep. As I told my brother-in-law, we're dealing with a franchise where it all connects. That is the name of the game. And, you know, Legends had been doing it. They had set up that precedence and they've ran with that. That is the one thing from Legends that carried over into canon is that concept (laughs) that is there. It's not going anywhere. Uh, You know, you had mentioned the whole father redeems or the son redeems the father. And and that's how I remember it being phrased was the, that the original trilogy was the son redeems the father and the sequel trilogy was going to be the, the father redeems the son. And in legends, when we get to that, it was Luke Skywalker and Ben Skywalker and Jason Solo as Darth Cadus is training Ben Skywalker in the ways of the dark side. And Luke brings his son back to the fold. Now, in this regard, they've taken the name Ben Skywalker and made it with Ben Solo. So we could still see something like that. But again, it gets back to what is the story they're planning on telling? Are they planning on telling a story where Ben Solo gets redeemed or are they trying to tell us a story where Ben Solo is the tragic character like Darth Vader who falls completely? Because, I mean, even when I think about what happened in Legends, Jason did everything he did for what he felt was the right reasons, but he still ends up being vilified. You know, he is still not a hero in the eyes of the galaxy. There are very few people out there that think of him in any kind of high regard. 
Uh, so, I mean, he sacrificed who he was for that. Whereas Kylo isn't necessarily doing that. Like, I don't necessarily know what that drive is where Jason had a drive that he felt was noble. We don't know what's going on with Ben. So I still don't know if, if he's a character I want redeemed. And again, getting back to that, he killed my favorite character, man. I thought that guy was going to be somebody I was really going to enjoy. My daughter, when she got me my Christmas present, asked her mom, did I make a mistake? Because she got me a Kylo Ren poster and I was devastated after that film, man. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to be talking about this a lot more in a few more episodes to come. We may even revisit it a couple more times down the road in the next year or two. Uh, you know, there, there's just so much about our fandom. If you guys have been following us from episode one, you already know. If you haven't, you just started listening to us, you're new to the show, welcome aboard and uh, strap in, man. It's going to be a heck of a ride. That's right. I'm very much looking forward to next episode and this question that I've been pondering for a while that we've really kind of been thinking about since before we knew there'd be a reboot of canon. That question of, all right, we just got a new film based on what's in it. Was a reboot necessary? Where could they have done it otherwise if they didn't? And so on and so on. I think that that should be an interesting discussion as well. And we'll also, of course, uh, get into other aspects, including how have we seen the film expanded upon in other materials already, whether we're talking about Tales from a Galaxy Far, Far Away, Aliens, The Visual Dictionary, and that sort of thing. We've hit the novelization, but there's a lot more out there tying into this film, even if sometimes the threads are pretty loose. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you all once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Hey, and remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com slash podcast network. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It is our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you are sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Legends universe, the Canon One, or Game of Thrones, or any other out there. And you can do it all without the risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That is one year, folks, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, it's been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Sing. Thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll actually get through our coverage of The Force Awakens in two episodes instead of three. Well, heck, three instead of four, the rate we go. Mm, that's true. 
What are the odds of that? Probably not in our favor. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, you know, giving background of characters we see on screen and thing. Ah, the f was that? That was an email. I didn't even hear it. that. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Broader context to it outside of a couple of guidebooks. It seems like I'm just gonna have. I heard that oh. one. Ah, too many f electronics. Ah, da, 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 da. Off. Let me make sure the other one is freaking off, except if I do that, I'm afraid I'm going to turn off my... Whatchamacallit? There we go. Okay. Um, for me, as far as seeing it, I saw it first... It, well, I guess the first... That. This all up for Hannah. Alright, so just kind of hitting pause here. We've got about 17 minutes until 2 o'clock. I can go just a couple minutes after that, but that's it because Joe right. will be on our way home. I'm figuring we get EU parallels here, and then I want to, yep. oh, we can open the next episode with the question of was the, based on the film, where could they have cut it? Was a reboot yeah. necessary? That sort of thing. That could be the yeah. off of another one. We can sort of tease that at the very end of this one of what's coming next. Sweet, sweet. You made a transition? Oh, oh yeah, I thought you were. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, do I say, are you muted? <laughs> yeah, we're like both like waiting like, hello? Hello? You don't want to be the <laughs> until it jumps in, right? <laughs> exactly. I do that enough on Rebels Round Table. Oh, there's the ding. My uh, my auction has two minutes and 16 seconds left on the current high bidder. And I've got another bid just in case ready to go here in about the last 15 seconds because I'm that kind of e-bear. Okay. <laughs>